Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes and this is episode 76 called The Road to Nica. In the last episode, we heard about Belisarius's glorious victory over the Persians at the Battle of Dara in 530. This was a military turning point for the Eastern Empire. For Justinian, it was a huge boost to his prestige. But that prestige was about to suffer a series of blows which would lead, in less than two years, to an attempt to overthrow him in the infamous Nika riots in Constantinople, when the green and blue factions revolted against him and left the city a smouldering wreck with tens of thousands lying dead in the streets. So, what went wrong? The first problem began with a seemingly benign project, the codification of Roman law, for which Justinian is especially famous. This began in his first year as emperor on the 13th of February 528, when he announced to the Senate he was working on it. Why did he want to do this? The answer was that law was highly regarded in the late Roman Empire, and one of the best ways of making your mark as an emperor was to reform the legal system. However, this wasn't as easy as it sounds. The last legal codification had been the Theodosian Code of 438, which had taken nine years to complete. But in almost exactly a year, in April 529, Justinian delivered his Codex Justinianus. What exactly was in this new code? To understand it, we need to take a step back and revisit the origins of Roman law in a text known as the Twelve Tables, written in the early days of the Republic in around 450 BC. These legal principles formed the basis of Roman law, which had been clarified and updated over the subsequent centuries with legal opinions given by authorities like judges called praetors, and since the days of Augustus by individual emperors who became a favourite source of petitioning by plaintiffs and made an endless number of legal rulings. This led to an enormous amount of case law or precedents that lawyers struggled to interpret. Consequently, any codification of these precedents into a user-friendly document was welcomed and seen as a mark of authority by whichever emperor was willing to take on this difficult task. The first to do this had been the great administrator Diocletian, who'd issued two major compilations called the Codex Gregorianus and the Codex Hermogianus. The Theodosian Code was the next one in 438, as I mentioned, but by the late 520s, it was 90 years old and needed updating. Justinian jumped at the opportunity, probably because he liked administration. Although by profession a soldier, he never, to the best of our knowledge, saw active service and much preferred making laws and regulations than leading soldiers into battle. Known as the sleepless emperor, he also enjoyed hard work. For example, when he became co-emperor with his uncle Justin in April 527, he issued more laws in the five months of his joint rule than Justin had done in his entire eight-and-a-half-year reign. Indeed, during his first nine years as emperor, Justinian was especially prolific, issuing over 400 new laws compared with some 30 issued by Justin and a similar number by the emperor Anastasius, who'd ruled for 27 years. 
So Justinian was a workaholic, and he applied this same energy to his new codification. But there was a problem that became apparent in April 529 when the new code was delivered. It had been done too quickly. It caused more problems than it solved. Justinian had to go back to the Senate to tell them that the work would have to be done again. He got it right second time around. One of his greatest gifts was to spot talent. And just as he'd singled out Belisarius as an able general, so he appointed a very capable barrister, Tribonian, as quaestor, or chief legal officer, to implement the second version of this new codification, but this time with a detailed compilation of the ancient laws on which it was based, called the Digest, a term close to the modern word encyclopedia. Just as Belisarius became synonymous with Justinian's wars of reconquest, so Tribonian became synonymous with his legal reforms. But in 530, Tribonian said he needed longer than a year. Indeed, he wanted at least three years to gather, analyse and reissue under the emperor's signature case law, which was said to take up 2,000 books or some three million lines of Latin text. Tribonian's revised version of Justinian's Code would become the definitive one, but it was only issued in 534. And the point relevant to the growing dissatisfaction with Justinian was that up until this date, his law reform appeared to be a failure. I'd like to take this opportunity to tell briefly the full story of Justinian's legal initiatives, since they didn't end there, and as I mentioned, they are one of the most important legacies of his entire reign. So, in 530, he also instructed Tribonian to produce a condensed and introductory textbook of this new reformed law called the Institutiones or Institutes. These provided lawyers with a framework explaining how the new code worked and how the different parts of it related to one another. It was published in 533 at the same time as the Digest and just prior to the reissue of the Codex in 534. But Justinian's legal reforms didn't stop there. As I mentioned, he was a prolific maker of new laws. And during his reign, he also issued what had become known as the Novellae Constitutiones, or New Constitutions, or as they're almost always referred to, the Novels. These were various new laws issued during his reign, many of them in the later 530s, which Justinian himself never compiled into a single document, but which were collected and recorded by various lawyers later in his reign and in the centuries thereafter. Taken altogether, the four works, the Codex, the Digest, the Institutes and the Novels, are today collectively referred to as the Corpus Juris Civilis, or Body of Civil Law, or more simply as the Code of Justinian. 
It was by far the most long-lasting achievement of his entire reign, since it established the principles and practice of civil law, which still forms the basis of modern law today in most of continental Europe and Latin America, and which was actually used in most of continental Europe for over a thousand years until it was updated by another great emperor, Napoleon, when he established the Code Napoleon. The other main type of law is called common law or case law, which developed in medieval England and is still used there and in the United States. It's also worth mentioning that Justinian's code was influential on Islamic law in later centuries as well. So that's enough of law and let's get back to the year 530. The important point at that moment was that Justinian's first attempt at codification had been a failure and Tribonian would not deliver his new and resoundingly successful version until much later in 534. Admittedly, at that time in 530, the war with Persia was going well because of Belisarius's victory at Dara, but in other areas Justinian was meeting resistance. We have very little information about it, but it seems resentment was growing against an increasingly aggressive tax regime, and in particular against Justinian's newly appointed finance minister, John the Cappadocian. Justinian made him chief finance minister in the role of Praetorian prefect for the East in about 531, but he seems to have held this role unofficially before then. According to an account by a bureaucrat called John Lydus, John the Cappadocian came from the city of Caesarea in Anatolia, which isn't to be confused with the Palestinian city of the same name located in modern Israel, which Procopius came from and he served as a financial officer in the army based in Constantinople, where he came to Justinian's notice when he was in the Imperial Guard, just as Belisarius and Sitas had done. Justinian observed in John two of the features he most highly valued, ruthless efficiency and complete loyalty. As Justinian's star rose, so he helped John to rise to a senatorial rank and then to his position as chief finance minister. John Lydus nicknamed him the foul Cappadocian and wrote, quote, Cappadocians are always foul, fouler, however, when appointed to office and at their foulest when in pursuit of profit, end quote. Lydus says John the Cappadocian was keeping money for himself and his tax collectors became so severe that they would torture people to death who they suspected were hiding money. He claims that in Lydia in Asia Minor, John's agents overtaxed the inhabitants such that the province, quote, became bereft not only of money, but also of human beings. Procopius is also particularly critical of Justinian's financial management, a subject we'll come back to in more depth in later episodes. For example, in The Secret History, where, as you know, he describes his feelings about Justinian in extreme terms, but ones where there's probably more than a grain of truth, he describes Justinian sucking the sea dry as he voraciously overtaxed the empire. Quote, 
I shall now proceed to relate how Justinian appropriated all the money he could lay his hands on, first mentioning a dream vision which at the beginning of Justin's reign appeared to one of the senators. He reported how, in his dream, he seemed to be standing somewhere in Constantinople on the seashore exactly opposite Chalcedon, and that he saw Justinian standing in front of him right in the middle of the channel. First, Justinian drank up all the water of the sea, so that from then on he seemed to the dreamer to be standing on dry land, as the waves did not break on the shore at this point. Then more water appeared, choked with masses of filth and rubbish and pouring out of the sewers on both sides. This Justinian drank up as well, laying bare once more the bed of the channel. End quote. In contrast to Justinian, Procopius praises the Emperor Anastasius for leaving quote, the state full to the brim with tax revenues, which Justinian quote, dissipated in next to no time. And even in the early years of Justinian's reign, there seems to have been resentment against an increasingly rapacious tax system. But the final reason which caused people to consider rebellion against Justinian came from an unexpected quarter. For, just as Belisarius had won a resounding victory at Dara, his next engagement against the Persians was a defeat. Indeed, the only defeat in his remarkable military career. This didn't happen until the year after Dara in 531, and indeed immediately in the months following Dara, things continued to go well for the Romans. They won another victory against the Persians, this time in Armenia, where the generals Sitas and Dorotheus met a Persian army outside the town of Satala. Unlike Adara, Procopius wasn't present at the battle this time, so our information is limited. But he says the Romans had some 15,000 men, and like the typical Roman army of this time, they were a mix of armoured horse archers and heavy infantry. Sitas concealed his cavalry in some woods as the Persians advanced up to the town, which was defended by Dorotheus. As the Persians attacked, Sitas unleashed his cavalry into the Persian flank, who fled with heavy casualties. After that, the Romans captured two fortresses, Bolum and Pharangium. Justinian was delighted with these two victories and keen to make peace with the Shah Kavad, so that he even offered him a one-off cash payment. But Kavad's regime was now in crisis, and he needed some sort of success to counter the growing criticism of him at home. So, in the spring of 531, another Persian army advanced into Syria. By this time, the Persians were short of manpower, and they employed a large force of Arab allies, the Lakhmids, under the leadership of Al-Mundir. Led by a skilful Persian general, Azarethes, this force was composed entirely of cavalry, leaving behind the large numbers of inferior quality infantry that boosted Persian numbers but seldom made a positive contribution in battle. As such, it was a highly mobile force, which was intended to make a lightning raid into Roman territory, sack a city or two, and withdraw, claiming some sort of victory which would help bolster Kavad standing with the Persian nobles and secure the succession for his son Cosroes. 
To achieve an element of surprise, they took an unusual route into Roman territory, going along the Euphrates far to the south of the normal battleground of Dara and Nisibis. The attack seems to have caught the Romans unawares, who probably thought the war was as good as won. Belisarius immediately took charge of the Roman response, but he wasn't sure whether Azarethes' attack was a diversion to cover for a larger Persian attack around Dara, so he garrisoned the fortresses around Dara and marched to meet the Persians with an army of some 20,000, including the Romans' Arab allies, the Ghassanids, led by Harith. When Azarethes realised Belisarius was coming to meet him head-on, he retreated rather than give battle. What then happened has never been entirely clear due to two differing accounts left to us by Procopius and Malalus. Procopius provides the most detail and emphasises that Belisarius didn't want to fight the Persians since they were retreating and it was also Holy Week with Easter Sunday approaching which was a strict day of fasting for Christians. But his troops thought differently. They were desperate to fight, and according to Procopius, they, quote, mocked him, both officers and soldiers, although no one reproached him to his face, end quote. Procopius says Belisarius gathered his men and addressed them, telling them he thought it was the wrong time to fight, especially since Easter Sunday was the next day when they would be expected to fast, and emphasising they had nothing to gain since the Persians were already retreating. But the soldiers refused to accept this, and when some officers openly accused him of cowardice, it was too much, and he agreed to fight. The next day, Belisarius offered battle beside the town of Callinicum, positioning his army next to the Euphrates on his left, putting himself with the regular heavy cavalry in the centre, most of the Roman infantry on the left beside the Euphrates, and the right wing comprising a mixed force of Arabs, Huns, and newly recruited infantry from Isauria and Lyconia in Anatolia, under the command of Longinus and Stephanakius, bolstered by some regular cavalry led by Ascan. The Persians stopped their retreat and turned to face the Romans. There was a long archery battle, as happened at Dara, with both sides shooting enormous quantities of arrows. However, unlike at Dara, where a wind had favoured the Romans by denting the force of the Persian arrows, this time they rained down more heavily on the Romans, although Procopius says the Roman archers had more powerful bows, but couldn't fire as quickly as the Persians. After a stalemate with this archery contest, Azarethes launched a powerful attack against the Roman right wing, where their Arab allies, the Ghassanids, fled Procopius blames the Arabs for retreating, although he says they often did this to feign a retreat. However, there was no feint this time, and they fled off the battlefield, leaving the Roman heavy cavalry and the Azorian and Lyconian infantry surrounded. They fought bravely, and both the infantry generals Longinus and Stephanakius were killed, as was the Roman cavalry commander Ascan, who, Procopius says, slew many Persians before he 
too was slain. 800 of the 3,000 Roman heavy cavalry died before they fled, leaving the 2,000 Isaurian and Lyconian infantry to be slaughtered. Procopius grimly notes it was these new recruits who had been the keenest to fight and call Belisarius a coward. The collapse of the right wing was catastrophic for the Romans, but instead of the entire Roman army being routed, Procopius says the regular heavy infantry on the left wing beside the Euphrates conducted a successful rearguard action, holding out until nightfall when the Persians withdrew. But here, Procopius and Melalus disagree about Belisarius's actions. Procopius says he left the cavalry to join the infantry and led the resistance. However, Melalus says he fled the field entirely, leaving the infantry to fight on by themselves under their commander Peter. He says it was actually the Hunnic leaders, Sunicas and Simas, who bravely joined the infantry. Both chroniclers agree the infantry put up a heroic resistance, forming a dense shield wall, or fulcum, as the late Roman version of the classical testudo formation was called. From behind the shields, Roman archers shot arrows at the attacking Persians, finding their mark, according to Procopius, rather more effectively than the Persians, who charged again and again in vain against the Roman shields until, quote, their horses, annoyed by the clashing of the shields, reared up and made confusion for themselves and their riders, end quote. Most historians believe Malalus's version that Belisarius fled the field with his cavalry. I disagree. While it's impossible to know the truth, my sense is that the infantry's stout defence suggests Belisarius was there commanding them. Whatever the truth, the infantry certainly saved the defeat from turning into a complete rout. The Persian victory was a pyrrhic one, as Procopius was at pains to point out, emphasising their casualties were just as high as those of the Romans, and embellishing this with a story that the Persians counted their war dead by requiring soldiers to leave a weapon in a basket when they marched away. When they returned, the army would file past the baskets and the soldiers would pick out their weapons. The number of unclaimed weapons was therefore the number of dead. Procopius says, quote, Since there were many weapons left, Kavad rebuked Azarethes for the victory, and their Thereafter, ranked him among the most unworthy. End quote. Despite the rearguard's heroic defence and the Persians' heavy casualties, Justinian dismissed Belisarius from his position as Magister Militum per Oriens and set up a commission of inquiry into the defeat. Belisarius was recalled to Constantinople to face the results of the inquiry. However, this treatment of Belisarius seems to have been done for show more than anything else, since Justinian kept him commanding troops in the capital. And as we will hear in the next episode, Belisarius would shortly play a critical role in the Nika riots. But Belisarius's dismissal suggests Justinian himself was coming under growing criticism, probably led by the supporters of Hypatius, the Emperor Anastasius's nephew, who'd long been seen as a rival candidate for the throne, and who Justinian had just recently snubbed by replacing him with Belisarius as supreme commander in the East.
So dissatisfaction with Justinian was now simmering. Dissatisfaction with his overzealous taxation. Dissatisfaction with his failed attempt at legal reform, at least as that appeared in 531 before Tribonian had successfully remodelled it. Dissatisfaction probably with his wife Theodora, who, as Procopius reminded us so vividly, was hardly the pious virgin expected of an empress. And now dissatisfaction with Belisar defeat by the Persians. This was voiced in the Hippodrome in Constantinople where the mob gathered to chant their views. Normally these were respectful towards the emperor along the lines of long may you live Justinian but towards the end of 531 the chanting took a decidedly more threatening tone and would that Justinian had not been born was frequently heard. Anger was building, and it was about to explode. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. And in the next episode, which will be in two weeks' time, on the 3rd of February, we'll continue with Justinian and Belisarius. And in the meantime, please do leave a review if you like the podcast, and do also check out my website, nickholmesauthor.com, link in the show notes to find maps, blogs, and a free ebook. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <music>